0: Thank you so much. Well, we're glad to have each of you here this morning. Uh, summer is a time of uh, travel and vacations and going, and so we're glad that you're here to worship with us today. It's always good to see some folks visiting, and we're glad that you came as well. Turn with me to John, the Gospel of John. Chapter Five. We've been just about a year now in the Gospel of John, a little over a year. Uh, it's been a really good study, and it's just going to get better as as it goes. John, chapter five, verses one through sixteen. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time and said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time uh, in your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would bless it. Teach us from it, we ask, and change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' earthly ministry was to prove himself as the Messiah and to carry out the work that the Father had given him to do before the foundation of the world. To authenticate himself as the Christ, the Father gave him signs and miracles to do so that the people would recognize him. Matthew chapter 11 Verses two to five says, now when John, when he heard that John was in prison, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Even John had a momentary lapse of doubt as to whether Jesus was indeed the Christ. But to authenticate that he was indeed the one that should come, he told uh, John's disciples to tell John that these miracles are being done. These things are the things that substantiated Jesus as the Messiah. Matthew chapter 4 verse 23 of his gospel. And Matthew says this. He went went throughout all Galilee teaching in the synagogues. And proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every disease and affliction among the people. As a result of this. Verse 25 says, great crowds followed him from Galilee, from the Decapolis, and from the Jerusalem and Judea and beyond Jordan. Great crowds of, of people were following him. Unfortunately, these great crowds of people flocking to him were only there to see or to benefit from the miracles that he did. They were not devoted to him in faith as their Messiah. Only a few responded like that. We see in chapter 2 that even when Jesus came on the scene and John's disciples saw Jesus and John pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Those disciples followed him. Remember in chapter 2 when he went to the, to the wedding and he turned water into wine? Who was it that believed it was his disciples? He did works in the temple in chapter 2, verses 12 through 25. And a number of people believed in his name. In fact, in the previous chapter, we just saw that only a small number of people believed in him when he did the miracle of raising the son of the official at Capernaum. As we progress through this gospel, we will see that the crowds increasingly reject and abandon Jesus as he is maligned and accused by the Jewish leaders whom the people feared more than they feared God. Always on the lookout for what Jesus was doing was the Pharisees. They followed him at every turn. And watched to see if they could accuse him of something to discredit him as the Son of God and as the Messiah. The passage in chapter 5 that we just read is one of those times. In fact, it launches, it launches the greatest thrust of hatred and hostility against Jesus. This is where the real hostility begins. Now we've said before that the Jews had many rules and regulations that they had made up over the years to harness people into submission to their control. Much of this rule making centered around the Sabbath. For example, on the Sabbath, a man may borrow his neighbor's jar of wine or jars of oil provided he does not say to him lend them to me this would imply a transaction and a transaction would involve writing and writing was forbidden on the sabbath or again if if a man put out a lamp if he puts out his lamp in his home on the night of the sabbath from fear of the gentiles or fear of an evil spirit or to allow one that is sick to sleep he is not guilty but if in his mind he thinks i need to save that oil i need to i need to save the wick in that lamp then he's guilty the attitude of healing on the sabbath was illustrated by a very curious provision that a man may not put vinegar On his teeth to alleviate a toothache. But if he adds vinegar to his food and eats it, then he is not guilty. And the rabbis would conclude if he's healed, he's healed. These things are found written in the Jewish law. The Mishnah records, he that reaps corn on the Sabbath to the quantity of a fig is guilty. Because plucking corn is reaping. Remember when Jesus' disciples walked through the cornfield and they pulled ears of corn and began to eat them. And immediately the Jews said they're breaking the Sabbath. Rubbing out the grain was threshing. And threshing was forbidden on the Sabbath. Even to walk on the grass on the Sabbath was considered threshing. Another says that a woman who rolls wheat in her hands to remove the husk, is considered sifting. If she rubs the head of the wheat, it's considered threshing. If she cleans off the chaff, it's considered sifting out fruit. If she throws them up in her hand, it's considered winnowing. And there were thousands and thousands of Jews in Jerusalem when Antiochus Epiphanes Came into Jerusalem and slaughtered thousands of Jews in the streets and they would not defend themselves because it was the Sabbath. Now, these Jews, to these Jews, the acts of Christ, the works of Christ that he is doing was a gross desecration of the Sabbath law. And worst of all they were not only permitted by Jesus but he approved of them This is said all of this is said to show you how the Jews imposed their legalities on the people in order to corral them under in fear And that's why Jesus said if the son makes you free you're free indeed Until now, the works of Jesus that Jesus has done in John's gospel have not been severely questioned by the Jews. But now we see that Jesus begins to be persecuted for the works he is doing. Though those works are good and righteous works, but there is far more behind this than just Jesus doing works, as we will see. So beginning in chapter 5 through chapter 7, there is a drift, a change in the Jews' attitude towards Christ. It moves from simple reservation, as we see in 326 and 4 1 to 3. They were reserved uh, about who he was. They had reservations about him. But now, their reservations turn to outright rejection of him and persecution of him. This comes to a head in chapter 7, verse 52. When they said to him, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet comes out of Galilee. Well, what are they saying? They're saying the scripture says nothing about you because you are from Galilee. Galilee. And no prophet has ever come out of Galilee. In these chapters, Jesus is rejected with public hostility while proving that he was their Messiah. Such as the event here at the pool of Bethesda. The reaction from the Jews at this miracle was so strong that they were motivated to kill him. In chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000 and uses that as a miracle to point to himself and trust in himself alone as sacrifice and the only way to be saved. Virtually all forsake him, except for his inner circle of disciples. In chapter 7, the Jews seek to arrest him. And in chapter 8, they seek to stone him. course it was not his time and he always escaped out of their hands. Now in verse 1 of chapter 5 we see Jesus going up to Jerusalem to one of the feasts of the Jews. Going up to Jerusalem from Capernaum which was in the north, Capernaum was north of Jerusalem, meant that they had to go up in geography and topography, they they went up to Jerusalem. They were climbing hills to Jerusalem. Jerusalem sat on a high elevation. There were seven feasts that John mentions in his gospel. And this is the only feast that is not named. So we really don't know what feast this was that Jesus went up to. But I think that when we see the context of this portion of scripture we can we can we can come to some agreement that it doesn't matter what the feast was Jesus had to go to Jerusalem at this particular point for a particular purpose and that purpose is given to us as we will see leaving the feast unnamed is really not that important But the fact that Jesus went up to Jerusalem is of importance. Jerusalem was the headquarters of the Jews. And Jesus would move into this hornet's nest. And you know what happens when you shake up a hornet's nest? The hornets get very angry. And this is what happens in Jerusalem These feasts from the Old Testament has always been called the Feast of Jehovah. Give you a passage. Exodus twelve, fourteen. This is the day that you shall this day shall be for a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord, to Jehovah. Throughout your generations. Leviticus twenty-three, verse two. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are the feast of the Lord of Jehovah. Thank you, sir. Here we see it called a Feast of the Jews. Now why is that important? The name change calling it a Feast of the Jews indicates the great spiritual decline that had taken place in Israel. You know, uh, there's a lot of spiritual decline in America today. And a lot of things that we once called in spiritual speech some of the things that we words that we used in the past are no longer used among evangelical christianity simply because they are too strong they're too hard and people don't want to be corralled with those feelings that these words bring up words like sin Words like hell. Words like eternal damnation. I was talking to someone just this week. Who told me that I think a relative that they knew didn't like coming to churches like ours. Because there was too much hellfire and brimstone. That makes people uncomfortable. People don't want to be uncomfortable. They want to be comfortable in their sin. Israel had gone through a spiritual decline. And many of the things which started with its focus on God ended up focusing on men and their religious systems, which got in the way of the main focus, which is God. It's the same today. People grasp for all kinds of things, all kinds of movements, all kinds of of deeds and things that they can do. And all it does is take the focus off of the main thing, which is Christ. These feasts had become events of mere form with no faith in the one whom they were about to start with. What's the use? If you're going to come to a church service where Christ or God or the Bible is not used, what's the point? One side note on this phrase, Jesus went up to Jerusalem... Not so much concerned about the topography or the geography of the story, but the message that going up to Jerusalem sends. The trip to Jerusalem would have been a long and arduous journey up the mountains. Jesus put forth considerable effort to go to this religious feast. He sacrificed the time and the effort to be there. How much time and effort do we exert when the Lord commands us to be somewhere or to do something or to worship? How much time and effort do we exert? How much sacrifice do we make? In going, He became an example to His disciples who might have internally been saying, Oh no, not another trip up to Jerusalem. I mean, they had just gone to Samaria up in the mountains and they had just gone out of Samaria to, to Capernaum. And now they've got to take that long trip from Capernaum down the Jordan and up the mountains to Jerusalem. Nothing is too hard, nothing is too arduous for us when our Lord commands us to do it. Excuses will not work. Sometimes we're providentially hindered, and that's different. I'm not going to ride that hobby horse any longer. Look at the pool of Bethesda. The pool is called Bethesda, was a mystery for many, many years. Archaeologists did not know or had not found or could not find where the pool was. Its exact location was found in 1888 when construction repairs of the Church of St. Anne in Jerusalem were under, underway. There is a faded fresco which was found on the wall of an angel troubling or stirring up the water. And so the pool of Bethesda was they're real pool. Bethesda is equal to, and Aramaic is a, is an equality language for Hebrew. It's Hebrew from which it originates the meaning the house of pity or mercy or the house of twin outpourings. A pilgrim visiting Jerusalem in 30, in 333 AD described it as two pools, one line north and one line south near the sheep gate, surrounded by four colonnades, two on the, on the north pool, two on the south pool, with another colonnade dividing the two pools, which makes five. This says there were five colonnades. These porticos or porches covered made shelter for those who came to the pool. And there were many, many people who came to these, this pool to get into the water. Multitudes of the physically infirmed would gather here in the hopes of being the first one into the water when it was stirred up by the angel. Now, let me speak to that. Some manuscripts insert or in part or in whole these words after the word paralyzed. Where it says in verse 4. They were blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down and at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. If your translation has those words, the ESV does not have them. Because they are not in the best of the, of the ancient manuscripts. They are in some, but not the better ones. And I think there is a reason for that. Another reason to delete them is the fact that in scripture, angels are not involved in healings of any kind. There is nowhere in scripture you can find where an angel healed anybody. Angels take people's lives. Angels angels guide people. Uh, Angels stop people. Nowhere do you find where they heal people. Until Christ came in His public ministry there was a time of 400 years of silence. Where God spoke to no one. Nothing happened. Even John the Baptist. As powerful a preacher as he was. Did no signs. And had no healings. According to John 10.41. Now certainly water is involved in healings. In scripture. We see We see Naaman in 2 Kings 5 going down to the Jordan River and dipping himself seven times in the water. It wasn't the water that healed him. It was the obedience to what God had said for him to do that healed him. I think it very possible that the water in this pool had some kind of healing or comforting ability to relieve pain or malady of those suffering. But not a miraculous or total healing. I think the thing about the angel coming down, stirring up the waters was a myth. And believe you me, people will believe myths. Especially if it involves the miraculous. There are mineral springs whose waters have... Comforting and healing properties in them. And many people avail themselves of hot, hot mineral springs for physical difficulties. The angel stirring up the water could have been nothing more than a air bubble or a gas bubble coming up out of the ground in the pool. Look, people believe all kinds of things when they think, when they feel like that they can get better from their sicknesses. They'll grasp at almost anything to get well. So among the crowd of people there that day that was sick, this man, this one man who was lame and had suffered for 38 years in his infirmity, Now, I don't think he laid there at that place for 38 years. He would obviously be brought there by someone and laid down. He couldn't walk. Then they would probably come and get him in the evening and take him back home. But there were all kinds of others that lay there by this pool waiting for the waters to stir up somehow and hoping to be the first one in. Jesus arrives at this most pitiful and forlorn place and sees the multitude, now get the picture, sees the multitude of people waiting there. They couldn't even get up. They were lying, it says, at the pool. Does that sound like a description of lost humanity? Helpless? Can't get up to help themselves. People who are lame in their soul and cannot help themselves. People who are blind and cannot see the truth that is right before them. People who are paralyzed by the effects of sin. Of all the multitude of people there that day around the pool of Bethesda, there on that day Jesus chose one man to heal. One, it's a picture, it's a picture of God's sovereign act of salvation in humanity. MacArthur writes, this indecent, or this incident, this incident perfectly illustrates God's sovereign grace in action. Out of all the sick people at the pool, Jesus chose to heal this man. There is nothing about him that made him more deserving than others, nor did he seek out Jesus. Jesus approached him. The Lord did not choose him because he foresaw that he had faith to believe, in, believe for a healing. He never did express belief that Jesus could heal him. So, so it is in Salvation. Out of the spiritually dead multitude of Adam's fallen race, God chose and redeemed His elect, not because of anything they did to deserve it, or because of their foreseen faith, but because of His sovereign grace. That's the truth of Scripture, my friends. We'll see it so clearly when we, when we move into chapter 6. And we'll get a a really good study of it there. It's easy to miss the real meaning of this miracle by focusing on the miracle itself. I mean, it's a pretty spectacular thing when a man has been laying at this pool brought there every day for 38 years and he is lame and can't get up and all of a sudden he jumps up, takes up his bed and goes home. That's pretty spectacular. Especially if you had seen him there for a long period of time. But this is a miracle that has purpose. And the purpose is to focus on Christ, the healer of souls. Not the healer of bodies. First, Jesus knew all about this man and his long years of sickness and disability. Why do you suppose Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? That seems kind of like a strange question. It's like asking someone with cancer who's racked in pain, do you want to be healed of your cancer? Well, what kind of answer do you reckon that would give? It seems almost unnecessary. This was the reason he came to lay at the pool. Did he not hope to be healed of his paralysis? Notice his response. Do you think his response would be what is given in Scripture? Don't you think his response would assist him in a simple, yes. It wasn't. He didn't respond with yes he immediately began to defend his system of having his need met This is what people do They hold to their system Doesn't matter what God says doesn't matter what God offers I I know what I think I think what I think And this is what I think Sir There is no one to get me into the water when it stirs. He did what all sinners do when confronted with sin, with their sin, and that is, he blamed others for not being healed. No one to put me in the water. Does that sound like so many of the excuses you hear today? I've heard them all. Things like, ah, the church is just full of hypocrites. Really? Like there's no hypocrites in the world? Or I'm afraid of what people might think. If I, if I did that, if I, if I trusted Christ, what, what are my friends going to think? What are my family going to think? Or how about this one? Oh, I'm not good enough. God, God couldn't save me. I've been too evil, too bad, too sinful. Uh, I'm not good enough. Or I'm a good person. God wouldn't really punish me. I've done nothing. I've really done nothing any more wrong than anybody else. Or I'm not ready to make that kind of commitment. Listen, those who hold to their human systems and excuses will not see healing of their soul. There has to be an abandonment. There has to be no excuses that will exonerate them. We have to fall on our face before God and plead for mercy. Heart has to be emptied of self. Second, I've only got a few minutes here to grab this. Second, the man now healed continues to pass blame for himself onto others, unlike the woman at the well who didn't do that. Unlike Nicodemus who at least recognized that Jesus was. Somebody pretty special. He se- This man seems to have no room for Christ or change in his life. Don Carson writes, he tries to avoid difficulties with the authorities by blaming the one who has healed him. He is so dull that he cannot even discover his benefactor's name. And once he finds out the report's Finds out he reports Jesus to the authorities in this light. Verse 7 reads less as an apt and subtle response to Jesus' question than the crotchety grumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he is answering a stupid question. You can almost hear from his lips the sarcasm. Would you, do you want to be healed? Duh. What do you think? I have no one to put me in the water. Take your bed. Stand up. Go home. Pick it up. Go home. Immediately. I'm out of time. I want to jump to the end. There's both a positive and a negative side. I've given you pretty much the the, uh, negative side of this man. Um, I'll give you the positive side. Jesus never said anything about this man sinning until he met him in the temple. Remember in John 9 the disciples saw a man that was blind and, he, and they said, hmm, what did this man do to become blind? Did he sin or did his parents? They assumed immediately that the blindness was a result of some sin. Nothing is said here about about this man. Except when he got to the temple, Jesus said, Go and sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. That's an indication that this man's trouble, his illness, was probably the result of some sin. Now, not all illness is the result of somebody sinning. Sometimes God sends illnesses to people's way to test them, to test their faith. To show their worth and admiration of Christ during their illness. Sometimes it's to teach lessons. But it is not always necessarily the case that some sin has been committed. But I think this man falls on the negative side. And I say that because of what he did in the latter part of these verses. When he saw Jesus at the temple, and now he knows who Jesus is. And he has no doubt heard Jesus' name mentioned And so he goes to the Jews and he tells them, it was Jesus of Nazareth that healed me. And he did it on the Sabbath. Why? Why would Jesus knowingly break the Sabbath law of the Jews to heal a man, knowing that it was going to bring about persecution? Why would he do that? They would have said to him, you have broken the laws of the Sabbath by carrying your bed. Then he passes the blame on to Jesus and they pass on the persecution to Jesus. They don't really care about him breaking the Sabbath law. They want Jesus. so the Jews accused Jesus of breaking Sabbath laws by healing this man on the Sabbath. And that gives them more fuel to persecute the Lord. The word persecuting in verse 16 is an imperfect tense verb. Which means that the persecuting started and continued on. They were persecuting him over and over and over. It didn't stop. It didn't let up. It kept on going. Jesus then gives takes this opportunity. And I think this is why the miracle took place. He takes this opportunity to reveal himself as God. Notice verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking the more to kill him. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's why they wanted to kill him. And he did all these things and all these things happened in this way just to show, just so Jesus could come out with, I'm doing the works of my father. I am equal with my father in heaven. Now, next time. We're going to look at. This, the aftermath of this state, these statements in verses 17 and 18. I'm going to talk about those some, but we're going to see after this that Jesus establishes before them His authority as Messiah, as the Son of God, as God in the flesh. And they absolutely reject it and hate Him all the more. May God bless the ministry of his word, and the truth that it has for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time, this Lord's Day, that we've come to worship for the singing, for the Lord's table, uh, for the uh, musicians who played, uh, the singers, uh, the congregation, worshiping, and now the worship. Lord, that we have given through the ministry and preaching of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would bless it, that you would uh, be honored by it, and that Christ would be made uh, very worthy and large in our sight. For he is worthy to receive all of our honor and praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Brother Steve, if you'll come back. And, well, let me just make an, one, one or two announcements here. Um...